Superhero movies have been around for decades, but never have they been more successful and popular than right now. Marvel has been shattering records and expectations with the final act of their 11-year Infinity Saga, DC has been making headway recently with some very strong showings in their own universe, and other studios have been scrambling for years to put out their own superhero movies and TV shows on every screen possible. As a lifelong fan of comic books and superheroes, I think the abundance of superheroes making it to the large and small screen is it's great. With more people watching comes greater success, and with greater success comes a wider variety of filmmakers telling their stories. With that increasing amount of diversity among filmmakers, the superhero movie is becoming more diverse as well. Now, superhero movies are arguably a genre unto themselves, but to me, I feel like they can fit into any and all genres. The superhero is more of a character type to me, and not so much the definition of a genre unto itself. Sure, most comic book movies tend to fit very snugly into the action, fantasy, and science fiction categories, but we've also seen comedies, thrillers, dramas, and pretty much anything else you can think of. One genre that I think has been underutilized when it comes to superhero movies, though, is horror. So tonight, I'd like to take a little time to talk about my thoughts on Brightburn, a movie that has been advertised heavily as a horror movie first, with its superhero tendencies coming in at a very close second. Is this the beginning of a new era of horror and superheroes? Maybe not, but I did enjoy the movie for what it was, even if what it was wasn't surprising in any way. What do I mean by that? Well, I'll explain as I discuss Brightburn here in The Last Theater. So, as usual, a little business before I get to the movie. Thank you for listening, whether you found this episode on iTunes or on cnjradio.com. If you like or you don't like what I have to say here tonight, please go to cnjradio.com and click on the link for The Last Theater and let me know all about it. I love talking about movies and will always, always keep it civil, even when I think you're wrong. I am kidding, sort of, but... My personal philosophy on movies is that they're all open to interpretation, and I love it when people can open my eyes to new ways about looking at things, so please let me know what you think. And also, as I get into talking about Brightburn here, I'll let you know that for the first part of this episode, it will be spoiler-free. It will be a review where the most spoilery things I get into are the basic premise and anything that was in the movie's trailer. So if you haven't seen Brightburn, it's safe for you to listen up until the point where I'll give out a very clear spoiler warning. And then after that, the last part of this episode will be an open discussion where spoilers are pretty much guaranteed. Okay, so just to get right into it, would I recommend Brightburn to people? Yes, I think so. If you saw the trailers and it looked interesting to you, then I'd definitely go see it. The trailer is, I think, a very good representation of what you'll see in the movie. And it's such a good representation, though, that I do think the trailer probably should have held back a bit more. I won't get into the details of why until later on in the spoiler portion of this episode, but yeah, if you've seen the trailer, then you're probably going to be able to fill in the blanks and more or less accurately predict most of the movie. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but as I was watching Brightburn, I began to think about specific scenes in the trailer that I hadn't seen yet, and they almost acted like spoilers to me. I knew certain things hadn't happened yet, and then I could see those scenes coming minutes before they actually happened in the movie. 
Like, sometimes even as early as the beginning of a scene, I know how that scene was going to end, or at least have a pretty good idea of where it was headed. It did take away a little bit of the suspense, and obviously suspense is a large part of what makes most horror movies scary. And of course, you can build suspense in other ways if you're someone like Alfred Hitchcock, and no offense to the director of Brightburn, but he is no Hitchcock. I mean, no one is really. It's an unfair comparison, and Brightburn isn't intended to be a Hitchcockian-style movie anyway. Brightburn, I think, is a straightforward slasher-style horror movie that uses our familiarity with the superhero origin story, specifically Superman's origin story, as a kind of a hook to get us invested in the characters and the way the plot unfolds. It's a lot like DC's Dark Multiverse. What if Clark Kent went down a different path when he started to realize he was stronger than everyone else? And instead of learning the value of being good from his adopted parents, what if he rebelled and was pushed away by the people in his life? That's the biggest draw to Brightburn, and in that respect, I think the movie delivers pretty much exactly what's expected. If you haven't seen the trailer, and I would recommend that you don't, even though it's probably too late at this point, here is the basic premise of Brightburn. The story takes place in a relatively small rural town in Brightburn, Kansas. A married couple, Tori and Kyle Breyer, played by Elizabeth Banks and David Denman, want to have a child, but some very clear exposition right at the beginning of the movie tells us that they are having fertility issues. They apparently can't have kids, so when something falls out of the sky one night when they're, well, one of them is trying to conceive and the other one's just trying to have fun, it's like their prayers have been answered. After a montage of home videos featuring a young boy and the voices of Tori and Kyle, the story picks up years later, and Tori and Kyle now have a 12-year-old son named Brandon, and it becomes clear very quickly that he is not like other children. So one day, Brandon discovers that he has what can only be described as superpowers. He's super strong, he's abnormally fast, and he is seemingly invulnerable to physical trauma and pain. More powers manifest as the movie goes along and as Brandon internalizes the struggles he's having with these new discoveries about his own body, his mother starts to become worried about how emotionally distant her, quote, sweet baby boy is becoming. Brandon slowly starts to realize that he has the power to do pretty much whatever he wants, and this starts him down a very dangerous path. And this is where his path with Clark Kent diverges, most obviously. As Brandon starts to push the boundaries of what he should and shouldn't do, people push back. And that just causes Brandon to push back even harder in what is essentially an escalation of violence that builds to a climax that I think works, though maybe isn't as exciting, tense, or as heartbreaking as it might have intended to be. My take on Brightburn as a whole is that it has a ton of potential to go in many, many different directions with the subtext and the tone of the film, because you get the general plot just by watching the trailer, Superhero Gone Bad, but it kind of treads this center path that's entertaining, yet mostly safe. And what I mean by that is, for example, they could have focused more on Brandon's manifestation of superpowers and change in attitude being a metaphor for going through puberty. The movie does touch on this to a certain extent, actually. Uh, Brandon's dad, Kyle, has the talk with him, and Brandon's sort of misunderstanding of his dad's words about girls and urges leads to some of the most tense and tonally dark scenes in the movie. Maybe it was smart to not go any further than they did in a movie that even though it's rated R, 
is intended for a, as wide of an audience as possible. But that's just one example of a direction that they could have gone that might alienate some viewers, but it also might have made for a more powerful impact when everything was said and done. And as a movie that's intended to be seen by as many people as possible, I think it does fall into a trap that many modern horror movies do. It's advertised horror, but I don't find it to be very scary. To me, the idea of a 12-year-old boy with the power to act on any and all whims and urges is terrifying. But the execution of that idea feels like the filmmakers weren't necessarily sure of whether they wanted us to fear Brandon or feel sorry for him. And I think a lot of modern horror movies that use the killer as the main character do fall into this trap. Uh, the killer is humanized to the point to where the traditional way of setting up a murder set piece doesn't necessarily work as intended. And I'll use an example from the trailer. Uh, in the trailer for Brightburn, we see Brandon terrorizing a woman in a restaurant. If we had gotten to know this woman and began to sympathize with her, then this scene would most likely be scary. However, within the context of Brightburn, this scene almost feels like we should be pulling for Brandon in a way. And again, without spoiling anything, the same tone occurs a few times throughout Brightburn during the scenes where Brandon is putting someone else's life in danger, even if that person is someone that we probably should feel sympathetic for. Now, as I said, Brightburn is half a superhero movie and half a slasher, and I do think that that's what was intended, to be half and half like that. And I realize that a lot of slasher movies have us pull for the killer rather than the people being killed. Really, most slashers these days are like that. I would say that after a certain point in the history of the slasher film, uh, the kills really became the biggest draw. And even when there is a sympathetic character being terrorized, the archetypal final girl, the different and inventive ways people are murdered are the biggest joys of a slasher film. The supporting characters mean less than the killings themselves, and it's often intended to be fun rather than scary. If that's the kind of movie you enjoy, then you probably won't have a problem with the tone of Brightburn. I mean, I enjoy those type of slashers as well, but I think the tone of Brightburn only felt strange or uneven at times to me is because the movie does set up some very sympathetic characters, only to have Brandon mostly go after the people who are not sympathetic. The people Brandon focuses on most are generally the ones who do something to, quote, deserve it, and there's no real emotional follow-through with those. If there is a final girl in Brightburn, it is Brandon's mother, Tori. However, even though I did feel for her throughout the movie, the focus was almost always on Brandon. And I'm generally not a huge fan of horror movies that have the killer as the main character. There are definitely some notable examples, and when it's done right, it can be extremely unsettling. But most of the time, that type of focus doesn't make for a very scary movie to me. It's like the difference between the original Halloween and Rob Zombie's remake. The original Halloween is very scary. The killer is largely a mystery, and his motives are at best unclear during at least the first movie. The main character of the movie is this nerdy young girl who we get to know and we get to care about. Her friends are killed, and yeah, we might not feel too bad for them, but they're really just there to set up the brutal killer and add tension for when he finally focuses on the character that we do care about. And this does happen to a certain extent within Brightburn, but I never really felt that connection or that emotional follow-through for the entirety of the movie. 
In Rob Zombie's Halloween remake, however, the focus is all on the killer. It's all on Michael Myers. It humanizes the boogeyman, and we don't really have time to get emotionally attached to the this innocent young girl. Laurie Strode didn't show up for like until like the 50-something minute mark in Rob Zombie's Halloween. We don't get emotionally attached to her whenever Michael does eventually go after her. Rob Zombie's remake of Halloween is more concerned with the violence and the brutality rather than genuinely trying to scare people, and to me, Brightburn does feel a bit similar to that. There is a fair amount of violence in Brightburn, but I think even more so the focus is on the blood and the gore. There is a fair amount of blood and gore in Brightburn, but blood and gore aren't necessarily scary. As a fan of splatter films myself, I do appreciate the willingness to deliver on some of the brutal and bloody scenes in a movie that is inspired by superheroes. If you like your horror more bloody than scary, then Brightburn could be for you. There are some cutaways and limited views of some of the ultraviolence in the movie, uh, presumably so they can get away with an R rating instead of crossing over into NC-17 territory, but there are a few gloriously gory moments. I won't say any more now other than after these past couple of weeks in the theater, I now have two new scenes to add to my list of uncomfortable violence involving someone's eyes. But all the talk up to this point in this episode has been about how Brightburn fares as a horror movie, but what about its superhero roots? For those who might not be aware, one of the producers of Brightburn is James Gunn. Gunn is the man responsible for writing and directing the Guardians of the Galaxy movies for Marvel, he's writing and directing the upcoming Suicide Squad sequel for DC, and he even wrote and directed his own original superhero movie back in 2010 with the movie titled Super that starred Ellen Page and Rain Wilson. James's cousin Mark Gunn and his brother Brian Gunn wrote the script for Brightburn, so it does seem like James's experience with superheroes, along with his history in the horror genre, had a huge impact on how Brightburn came together. Given the gun connection to comic books and superheroes, it's no surprise that Brightburn sticks close to some familiar superhero stereotypes. But then, I guess this isn't really a superhero origin, is it? I mean, clearly Brightburn is the origin of a supervillain, right? Well, when you get down to it, really, what's the difference? To me, it's all a matter of perspective. Many of the best supervillains have a sympathetic origin story, and pretty much all bad guys across all genres think that they are right, or at least justified for doing what they do. So I think the hero and villain label is just that. It's a label applied by someone with a different perspective. I think some of the uneven tone that I personally felt while watching Brightburn might have to do with the filmmaker's attempt at addressing some of those gray areas between heroes and villains. There have been plenty of superhero movies in recent years that tackle the subject of morality for individuals who are so powerful that they can do whatever they want without any real fear of retribution. Superman is often portrayed as the best of the best, the most powerful being on Earth with a huge heart and a sense of morality that drives him to help rather than to harm. And boy could he do some harm if he wanted to. So Brightburn asked the question, what if someone like Superman had a confused sense of morality? And what if there was no one powerful enough to stop him? It's a fun concept for sure. It's like holding up a dirty mirror to a lot of the superhero movies that we've seen over the past few decades. The struggle in Brightburn isn't about finding a reason and a way to do what's right. It's about not caring about what's right and doing whatever you want. That said, some of the character development in Brightburn did seem like it tried to focus 
on the struggle of Brandon trying to reconcile what he felt like doing versus what he thought he should be doing. This was sort of difficult to discern at times, though, because of how Brandon's character was portrayed. As I said earlier, Brandon internalized a lot of his emotions, and that resulted in a character that was outwardly pretty emotionless. We see him get angry a few times, but mostly he's just emotionally checked out. We hear him say at one point in the movie that he wants to do good, but by that point it's pretty late in the movie, and we'd seen enough to where the line comes across as completely unbelievable. There are also a few moments where we see Brandon try to be nice in his own messed up and confused way, but those moments are pretty few and far between. Mostly, Brandon just seems like a kid who was born bad. He feels like something other than human, which, yeah, I know he is, but so is Superman. And the thing about Superman is that his humanity, despite being an alien, is one of the things that makes him endearing. Brandon's humanity could have made him seem terrifying, but again, he mostly comes across as emotionless. That's scary in its own way, but not giving us a real reason for his change other than the fact that he's probably not human doesn't allow us to really connect with the main character of the film very much. But I think I'm starting to stray a bit, so back to the question at hand. Does Brightburn work as a superhero slash supervillain origin story? Yeah, sure, just not a terribly original one. Other than the fact that Brandon makes bad decisions, which leads to worse decisions, the basics of a super-person story are all there. And that's really the point, though. If the cliché elements of the origin story weren't there, then it wouldn't serve the real purpose of the movie. So what is the real purpose of Brightburn? I think the movie really just meant to be a rather light and entertaining new take on the superhero movies that have come to dominate the box office. It's meant to appeal to horror fans and comic book fans alike, and I think it does that well. It's not really meant to change the face of the superhero movie, rather, it's meant to give yet another option to those of us who love these types of films. And I didn't love Bright Burn, but I liked it, and I'll probably watch it again. I think fans of modern, wide-release horror movies will probably like it, and I think fans of superheroes who are interested in seeing something different might want to give it a shot as well. I do hope that it does well enough to open the doors to other horror-themed superhero movies, some of my favorite stories in comics could only ever be told as horror movies. And also, if this and the New Mutants movie does well, if the New Mutants movie ever comes out, then I do think we could see more from this sub-sub-genre of film, and I would be totally cool with that. Okay, so here ends my mostly spoiler-free segment of tonight's episode. From this point on, if you haven't seen Brightburn and want to check it out without any major plot points spoiled, then go ahead and pause this episode. I'm about to get into spoiler territory, so you have been warned. Welcome back to those of you who have just watched Brightburn. And a continued welcome to those of you who never left and or just don't care if I spoil the movie for you. And really, like I said near the beginning of this episode, if you've seen the trailer, then you've seen the movie. For me, the biggest thing about the trailer was that shot where Brandon was sitting outside with the plane crash behind him. And as the movie reached the final act when Brandon goes back home and terrorizes his mother Tori, I remembered that scene with the plane crash in the trailer. 
And knowing that all of Brandon's actions up to that point were about either personal vendettas or keeping his actions hidden, I quickly started to realize how that last major scene in the movie was going to end. I also knew that he was going to kill Erica and Noah, and pretty much how he'd do it way before any of those murders happened in the movie. And that's all because it seems like the trailer was made by probably not the filmmakers, because I doubt they would want to give away that much in the movie. It's like the trailer for Quarantine, the remake of Wreck, starring Jennifer Carpenter. The last shot of the movie is in the trailer, so I was waiting for it, and... Yeah, that's the worst example I can think of. Brightburn wasn't that bad in the trailer, but it wasn't great either, and it did kind of spoil the movie a little bit for me. A few things in Brightburn did surprise me, though. First, there was the scene where Brandon goes to Caitlin, his very nice classmate that says nice things to him when he's being made fun of in one of the early scenes in the movie, when Brandon goes to Caitlin's house, and he is essentially stalking the only person outside of his parents who had been nice to him, in this entire movie, so for us, it's his entire world. I thought that scene where Brandon keeps playing the music on Caitlin's laptop and then hides behind her curtains was really unsettling. It had just come after the puberty talk that his dad had awkwardly and kind of comically given to Brandon, and the juxtaposition of that kind of comical and coming-of-age scene in the woods next to the scene where Brandon is stalking this young girl Putting those right next to each other, I thought it, it came off really unsettling and it worked really well. And that's what I was talking about earlier, about how going down this path of using Brandon's superpowers as a metaphor for puberty, it could have been extremely dark and extremely effective. I do think it would have been difficult to respectfully handle that sort of content in a movie like this though, especially with kids as young as they were, and this is a movie intended for wide release for wide audiences, so I do completely understand and support why they didn't do that, but regardless, that scene in Caitlin's room was one of the more memorable for me. And that also goes back to what I was saying about not being sure if we were supposed to feel bad for Brandon or if we're supposed to fear him. And no, I don't need a movie to tell me what I'm supposed to feel, I, I actually like a lot of ambiguity in the movies that I watch. But I do feel like the movie itself wasn't sure of the point it was always trying to make. Brandon stalking Caitlin and breaking her hand later gave me zero sympathy for the character of Brandon and completely alienated me from him. And then later, Brandon decides that Caitlin's mother Erica needs to be out of the way so that he and Caitlin can be together. And it's this weird, fuzzy logic that he has in his own head justifying his own actions. At least that's what I gathered from the brief words and actions that this plotline was given. There wasn't a lot of follow-through for that, and you kind of had to piece some of that together. So the scene where Brandon terrorizes Erica, Caitlin's mom, is played from Erica's point of view. But the only time we'd gotten to know Erica up to that point is when she's yelling about Brandon being arrested for breaking her daughter's hand. We had seen her in that earlier scene in Brandon's birthday to establish that character, but the only thing we really knew about her as a character was that scene where she's yelling. And of course her reaction is completely understandable, but the way that particular scene ends is with Brandon's mom Tori seemingly putting Erica in her place, and it felt like the scene itself was taking Brandon's side. We know Brandon, we've spent a lot of time with him, and at that point we really only know that he's confused. 
So the way Erica is portrayed is as kind of an unreasonable and kind of unlikable person who doesn't really know what's going on. And that's the type of character in a slasher movie that will be one of the first to go because we really don't care about them. It makes their death more about the violence rather than being about feeling bad or being scared. And that's what Erica's death felt like it was all about. It was about her getting stabbed in the eye and chased into a freezer. So was I supposed to feel bad for Brandon? I didn't, really. In that scene in the restaurant, I was more curious about what he could do rather than with what he was actually doing to another person. Was I supposed to feel sorry for Brandon? Maybe. I mean, after all, killing Erica was partly about revenge for her being mean to him. But when you pull back from what we see on the screen, you realize that her daughter Caitlin is at home at that moment and her mother is being murdered by a boy that has some unhealthy infatuation with her. We never really see a follow-up on how Brandon affected Caitlin, though. The only thing we get in the movie is, like, one line from the police saying that Erica's daughter is barely saying anything. We never see Caitlin again, and I think that's where the real fear lies. The fear lies in the effects Brandon's actions have on those who have to live with what he's done. The same thing goes for Brandon's aunt, uh, Marilee. She is also Brandon's school counselor, because this is kind of a small town, I suppose, and Brandon didn't want his aunt talking to the police about what he'd said earlier in one of their counseling sessions. So when Brandon goes to Marilee's house, and he warns her in no uncertain terms not to tell the police about what he had said to her, it did come across as pretty chilling. In that moment, it felt like Brandon was actually struggling a bit with what he felt like he needed to do for himself versus wanting to do the right thing, as in not killing his aunt. But then, after Marilee goes to bed, her husband Noah comes home, and the entire focus of this whole scene that they had built goes away from this interesting emotional struggle to Brandon just straight up murdering Noah because he didn't want to get in trouble with his parents. Now, I will say, I did enjoy the scene on the road. Seeing Brandon in his mask and cape hovering down the road, only lit by the truck's headlights, was a nice image, which you saw in the trailers. And this was one of the gorier scenes, which I liked. After Brandon drops the truck onto the street, Noah's jaw is shattered, and he has to hold his jaw up to his own face, or else it looks like it's probably going to fall off. It's hanging on by... A few pieces of skin or something it's it's kind of dark and you don't see it for very long because again I don't think they wanted to stray into the NC-17 rating but it's it's really neat to see you don't see that in a lot of like you, you don't see that ever in superhero movies none that I can think of and I enjoyed all that but I also think that the whole thing felt like a bit of a cop-out from having a more emotionally complex scene with Brandon and Marilee his aunt because after all, we'd seen Marilee and Tori together, and it seemed like they were at least pretty close as sisters. We'd seen them together a couple times. And Noah, Marilee's husband, however, was just portrayed as some clueless guy who drinks mostly responsibly and plays pool with Brandon's dad. Noah's death had a large impact on the character of Marilee, but we only saw her for a few moments in the hospital and she was only there to relay some plot-important information about Brandon. And then, just like Caitlin, we were spared from any of the emotional fallout from Brandon's actions. We never saw Marilee again. If Marilee had been killed, it would have packed a much bigger emotional punch. 
because Merrily is Tori's sister, there's a stronger connection there, and we would have been forced to deal with it, and Brandon would have been forced to deal with it, and I think it would have been just more emotionally interesting to me. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that I just felt like they were playing it safe with the horror side of the movie. They weren't going for anything complex. They just wanted something fun with some neat death scenes from a superpowered boy, but they didn't really want to deal with any hard questions or emotions. And I suppose that's fair enough. I did like the connection that Brandon had with his mother, and I liked the differences that his mother and father were having with each other. Tori loved her son, and she said that she would always defend him. Kyle, his father, also showed that he loved his son, but he also kind of came across like he never really trusted him. For Kyle, it, it seemed like he always thought in the back of his head, whether it was conscious or not, that Brandon wasn't his child, that he was something else. Elizabeth Banks's performance came across like she knew that too, but that she was actively denying the truth because she loved her son so much. And I enjoyed all that quite a lot. I will say that one thing that struck me as a little odd is when I quickly realized that Kyle intended to take Brandon on a hunting trip as a way, as an excuse, to kill his own son. That struck me as very dark initially. It was a similar reaction to what I had when Brandon showed up in Caitlin's room, but this time it felt a little odd. Kyle, earlier in the movie when he was talking to Tori, had mentioned that he noticed that Brandon had never so much as bled or even bruised, so clearly it seemed like he knew that Brandon's body was different. I don't suppose he knew the extent of Brandon's powers, but it still felt odd that Kyle thought he could kill Brandon by shooting him. It's not a plot hole or anything, and it makes sense from Kyle's perspective in the moment, but by making a point of having Kyle say that he noticed that Brandon had never so much as been injured kind of worked against the logic of him thinking that a bullet would kill him. And I realize that Kyle saying that early in the movie was a way to set up the logic of Tori seeing Brandon get cut by the spaceship in the basement of the barn and later using that knowledge to try to kill Brandon, but I think that all of this could have been accomplished in a way that didn't feel so strange. It's a minor complaint though, and it might not bother anyone else. I think a lot of the setups and payoffs in Brightburn were actually very clear and well done. I've talked a lot about what the movie could have been, but what the movie was, was pretty good. I enjoyed the movie to the extent that it was a melding of two of my favorite things, superheroes and horror movies. I enjoyed the world building it did. It did leave a lot to mystery, which I quite enjoy. We don't need to know where Brandon came from. All we need to know is that he's different. There were some hints throughout the movie as to what Brandon is, if not where he came from, which I liked. The scene where Brandon answers his teacher's question about the differences between bees and wasps immediately struck me in the moment as important. Brandon is a wasp. He was sent to be raised by humans and eventually to prey on them. I thought that was a neat analogy, and I kept thinking about that throughout the entire movie. As the credits started to roll, I was satisfied with what I had seen in Brightburn. It was fun. I also enjoyed the bit of world building during the credits, thanks to Michael Rooker. It's always a pleasure to see Michael Rooker in anything, and his conspiracy theory videos that played as the credits began to roll were a lot of fun. It felt a bit like the videos that Wonder Woman watched of Aquaman, Cyborg, and The Flash in the middle of Batman vs. Superman. I don't expect we're going to see a whole shared universe in the Brightburn continuity, but I thought that was a really nice nod to the state of superhero movies and what people tend to expect from them these days. I'll probably watch Brightburn again whenever it comes out on Blu-ray. 
But until then, I have a lot of other movies to watch, superhero, horror, and otherwise, and I intend to talk about more of them here on The Last Theater. So as always, please go to cnjradio.com to find every episode of The Last Theater podcast, as well as the other podcasts within the CNJ Radio family. And let me know if there's anything you think I should be watching that I might have missed. There's a lot of good stuff out there, and I kind of want to see it all. But for now, I'll see you later. Bye.